Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Well, all right, everybody, here we go. Welcome to episode number 96 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, May the 8th, 2021. My name is Jeremy Lee. Okay, and before we get to tonight's episode, I do want to thank last Saturday's guest, Andy Albert of the Indie Card Exchange. We had a great show. He told some great stories. Check out that episode on the Sports Cards Live channel on YouTube, where all the old videos exist and are there for your viewing pleasure if you want to go back. I also want to thank last Saturday's After Hours guest. We had Joe Perot joining us. Uh, Brody the Kid was unable to, but he will be back again in the future. Next Saturday's guest will be DJ Ski. And on After Hours, we have Adam Gray, editor-in-chief of the Basketball Card Fanatic magazine. Be sure to join us again next Saturday. And tonight on the After Hours show, none other than Brian Gray, Leaf CEO and Hobby Information Overload Man. Very excited to have Brian on After Hours tonight and a friend of tonight's guest. So a nice pairing for the evening for all of us. All right, a couple of shout outs. As always, I want to shout out the podcast listeners. Thanks to all of you guys. Appreciate having you. I want to shout out the Big Three Hockey on Instagram. Give them a follow. There it is on the ticker right now. They showcased fine, fine singles on Instagram all the time. I also want to let everybody know that the Sport Card Expo Virtual Edition will be June 19th and 20th. There it is on the ticker. Free admission to everybody. Check it out. I will be set up and I cannot wait. And finally, again, I want to mention the Basketball Canard, <laughs> Basketball Card Fanatic magazine. New issue came out today and it is now available in print. Check that out if you haven't yet. And later on tonight, after after hours, I will be on Clubhouse, hopefully with a couple, one, one or more of tonight's guests and a bunch of you. So check that out. As usual, I do want to thank all the subscribers on YouTube. We're almost at 2,800. I appreciate all of you. And if you are not yet subscribed or you knew, you are new to Sports Cards Live tonight, please do give a subscription to the channel on YouTube. And as always, or almost always, your comments and questions are in play tonight. So do not be shy. Look forward to involving all of you guys tonight as per usual. Okay. Let us get to tonight's guest, whose first packs of cards were 1973 Topps Baseball. In his teens, he was in his teens, he was frequenting card shops and card shows, and he became the card guy at an Indiana coin shop. He went on to become a regional correspondent for Beckett, and he ended up spending approximately 22 years there in various positions. His favorite teams are the Chicago Blackhawks, the White Sox, and the Dallas Cowboys. His favorite athletes are Jeremy Roenick and Walter Payton. Originally from Chicago, Illinois, currently hailing from Plano, Texas. Let's bring him out. Dave Slipka, welcome to Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight, my friend? Jeremy, I am great. It's a thrill to be here. I'm going to have to remind myself that I'm actually the guest instead of just watching the show. So I'm very excited. Good, man. Well, hey, we've been talking about this for a while. I've been looking forward to having you on. I mean, you're somebody whose name I've been aware of for many years. It must go back to early Beckett hockey, Price Guide, seeing your name in there. 
And uh, it's really a pleasure and an honor to get to know you, spend some time with you. This isn't the first time. We had a couple hours a few nights ago. I always enjoy those pre-sessions. And uh, it's really an honor to have you on tonight, just based on your vast experience in the hobby. So let's get into it. What do you say? Well, the honor's all mine. I, I really appreciate being here. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, so let's jump in. I mean, uh, a guy with a resume like yours in the hobby, I think it's it's important that we get to understand sort of your experience and what, what you came through to get to where you are now and some of the experience you've had. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your history from, you know, uh, you know, your mother never threw out your cards, that sort of thing. You, you, did you collect all the way through? I did. And that's uh, that's you did a great job with the uh, 9000 foot view of doing the doing the story from beginning to to current. And yet I am fortunate that I am one of the few that mom didn't throw out my cards. And beyond that, mom used to drive me to card shows and flea markets to set up before I was old enough to have a car. So, yeah, I, I owe my mom a lot to where I'm at because uh, it started when I was seven or eight years old and it, and, it, and it hasn't stopped even in college. You know, you don't have a lot of money in college, but I still found a way to collect or buy some things that I want or, you know, sell a little bit in SCD ads or whatever I had to do. I was always a part of the hobby. Um, yeah. and, and lucky for me, I got to work in it professionally starting in. 1991, um, coming down to Dallas to work for Dr. Beckett. And, you know, things have been great since then. Having the opportunity to, to work at a card shop when I was a kid and, you know, help out with card companies and later on in my career. I, I You know, if you would have told eight-year-old me that I would have had this career, life is great. Life yeah. is great. So tell us a little bit more about your experiences with Beckett, because from our conversation, I mean, you've held various positions. Uh, take a, take us through that that timeline, if you will, just to set the stage for people who I know you've got a lot of pe- a lot of friends and family and and hobby acquaintances and fr- watching right now. But for anyone who doesn't know, tell us what were your various jobs along the way for for Beckett? Sure. Well, I could start with the job that I didn't get, and I still have the rejection letter from Beckett from 1990. It's kind of a motivation. It's kind of a giggle. But in I, you know, I used my business degree to try and get a job in the industry that I loved. I applied at Beckett for a marketing position, which was my degree from Northern Illinois University. And I got rejected. But somehow my resume, my name got around. And when the hockey magazine started up, and they it was so successful that they knew that they needed more information than the one soccer analyst, or I'm sorry, hockey analyst that they had there. And I got to know Mike Hirsch, the first hockey analyst. He introduced me to Dr. Beckett at one of the, the card shows in Detroit. And we met and stayed in touch. And he asked me to become their first regional correspondent, a term that became very important before the Internet, because you know, everybody had to ask is where did Beckett get those prices? How do they know, you know, what's going on out in the market? How do they know what's selling in Chicago versus what's selling in Miami versus what's selling in Vancouver? Well, they had a great, great network of dealers, collectors, shop owners that provided that information. And Dr. Jim says I was, I was the first that he gave that title to. I did that for a couple of months and when a second position on the hockey magazine came open, um, I got a chance to come down to interview for it. They call that one of the best draft classes in in Beckett history because they interviewed 
three guys for one position. I got the position, but the other two guys eventually got hired. <laughs> so you may have heard of Al Muir oh, yeah. and, and Tom Layberger. They both interviewed and now they're they're both in the um, in the hockey business as hockey writers. Al's done work for Sports Illustrated. Tom has done some things in Florida. So, you know, we thought that was one of the best Beckett draft class ever when I had the chance to come down to work on the hockey magazine. So that was your time at, uh, on the hockey magazine. Where, where, what did, what was your next position or role with, uh, with Beckett? That was a pretty solid position for uh, five, almost six years where I had the ch- work on the price guide. Then um, the veteran advertising executive retired and I was the kind of person that made contacts and liked to get in touch with different people and got to know people at the card companies. So when they had a position open for an ad executive that was going to manage the card company business, I was the obvious choice because I had the, I had the experience and I had the rejection letter. So I, they knew that I had kind of wanted that position at some point. So for the next 10 years, I was uh, advertising account executive, mainly focusing on the card companies building relationships with Tops, Upper Deck, Pacific, Fleer, Skybox, Donruss, uh, Collector's Edge, who, you know, more companies that are out of business that are, than are in. But I, I'm, I still have great contacts with almost all of those companies. And um, that was a tremendous part of my career that really springboarded the rest of my career. And including Brian Gray, <laughs> yeah. and and then you uh, you did some work as the Beckett Auctions and and a merchandise manager as well. What what did that entail? When the internet began, as we know <laughs> it today, see the gray hair, yeah, um, yeah. I, I had the chance to to expand work on there, and they called it merchandise manager, meaning that you know what ads appeared on the homepage, what ads what dealer information appeared. They, they wanted to have kind of a hobby expert make some decisions rather than just a business expert. So, you know, doing things that were appropriate for the Beckett business model and people understanding the business. So uh, I did a lot of things with the website, what you saw on the website, what you didn't see on the website, working with dealers for Beckett Marketplace. When Beckett Marketplace began and when it continued, you know, that's a place where dealers from around the country are able to sell sell their things and I help them get started and get trained and operate on the, on the website transition from that to Beckett auctions. We had relationships with the, um, with different agents, with different leagues, with, uh, with the mighty ducks, which I think they still do. I think they still are the exclusive seller for mighty ducks game worn jerseys, but I began that program through a contact that I had and, um, so Beckett Auctions, just a, a, another thing that I did that used my past experience and helped me with future things as well. So when you were done your stint there, you I, and I, I forget the exact timeline, but you had a bit of time off and then you went back in 2015. What happened in 2015 when you, when you went and worked with uh, Beckett again? Well, when I left in 2013 and in 2015, I had an opportunity to go back as a Beckett baseball uh, editor of the magazine. At that time, they were converting their editing positions to offsite, and I had the um, the opportunity to 
you know, they knew that I was kind of available and they knew that I was preferring to work from home. And that's the kind of person that they were looking for. So for just about two years, I was the editor of the uh, Beckett Baseball Magazine. Okay. So that that's pretty cool to, I mean, working on the price guide in the night, the hockey price guide in the nineties, and then coming back, what's that? 25 years later. Uh, well, right. that, what, what had changed in the meantime? Like, like I, I mean, besides everything, I mean, besides, besides everything, besides yeah. Doctor, I mean, if you could, if you, I mean, if you could think back to like the early days of Beckett, you were there in the, in the early ish days, I suppose at the beginning, uh, and then you're back there working, I, I believe, remotely in 2015 as as the uh, offsite editor. But yeah, w- if there was one big difference or one observation you'd have, what, what kind of comes to mind? Well, the obvious is that, you know, Dr. Beckett wasn't a part of the company anymore. He had sold the, the business and the business had actually been sold one more time since he had left. So I worked under Dr. Beckett and then I worked under the additional regimes that own the company after. So, um, you know, we have to look at things as pre-internet and post-internet and the information that we provided in the magazines in the nineties was quite yet quite different than you had to, than you provided in the 20 teens because there are so many different ways to get that information. So you, and you, as an editor, you have to know that you can't, put out a story that, you know, they have heard about three times, you know, they read three times in other sources. So it, it, it was more of a challenge to find information that would still be valuable by the time it printed. And that is always a challenge in, in publishing and was even a challenge in the early days with, with price guide, because we'd seal up the price guide data and it would go to the printer and go to the distributor and go to the card shop. And by then the reality is that, you know, some pricing had changed. And we would get a lot of criticism for that. But the reality is it was correct when we made it, or at least we thought so. So uh, publishing is, is a challenge when you're trying to be timely. I'm sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt. So I just want to call out, uh, there was someone in the in the chat here, Joe from ProWare, who was, uh, it looked like it was spamming the chat. So I blocked, but I've unblocked Joe from ProWare because I see a lot of, I, I'm sorry, I didn't know who you were, but a lot of people do. So Joe, you should be back able to, uh, to to post in the chat. So I apologize for that. Um, okay, well, listen, it, it's great to hear the history, Dave. Uh, you know, it, it sets sets the stage for kind of what you're doing now as a consultant and all that. Before we move on and, and learn about what it is that a, a hobby consultant does, let's just go through. We got a bunch of people here with us tonight, so I want to re-welcome everybody. Uh, great to have you all. So we're going to just do a few hellos from the beginning. Rocco, good evening. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Hockey, hockey. Yeah, last hockey night last hockey night in Canada night of the season tonight. I didn't even realize that, but boy, oh boy. Dennis Lescombe, good evening. We got Corey Carr. Rich Klein is here. Rich, good evening to you. Terry, fresh bread in the voice of Bruce Buffer. It's time for sure. Thank you for that. B. Roy, we got Kevin. We got hockey, hockey. Are Brian Gray and Adam Gray related? No, they are not. We got Charles, Dave Talbot, Yannick, Al G. Good evening, Alton Dunn. Dave is the man. Cannot wait to hear him and his expertise. That's great. Same here. Rich says, didn't you have enough with Brian this morning? Yes, Brian and I were co-hosting Hobby Hotline this morning, Brian Gray. And uh, no, you can never get enough Brian Gray. We got Ralphie. We got Will. Kevin W. Jeremy Pringle. Sanderson to Orr. Will says, is it true PSA regarding cards? that are sent for just re-slabbing. 
We'll get into that a little bit later, perhaps. Will Jeff McMahon, good evening. Yamwax is here. We got Absolute. All right, we got a lot of you guys. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Mickey says, do you like Eminence cards, Jeremy? Sure, I have nothing against Eminence cards, and we will talk a bit about a bit more about those a little bit later. Rich Klein says he used to keep that rejection letter hanging up in his cubicle, right? That's a, that's a kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a very cool memento at this point. Hey, Dave, I mean, I think it's really cool. It's cool memento, it's it's motivating, It's and it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Steve Menzi, good evening. Uh, so this is the Joe that I, I had blocked uh, before I realized. Will Sani, good evening to you. Kevin says, is the national going down this year? We're going to talk about that a little bit later on as well. Will says that Beckett just has a PhD in stats. Kind of, okay, Will, we're, we're, we're going to put you in a timeout. We're not going to deal with uh, rude comments like that this evening. Uh, okay. So let's let's move along, um, Dave. So you are now working as a hobby consultant. Tell us what what does that look like? What do you do? How does that work? Well, let's let's talk about when I left the company that I was at in between my by Beckett stints. I decided to go into business for myself. I really knew that I was a, a connector. I knew that I had a lot of contacts. I knew a lot of people. I knew a lot of people who needed to know a lot of people. And I, and I just thought that, you know, I could really be a connector in this business. And, you know, how can I monetize that? Well, there's not a, there's not a title out there. It says hobby connector. So I, I went with the only term that I really knew, and that's consultant. And ironically, that's probably the smallest portion of what I do. <laughs> I do do some consulting, but I, I am more of a, I am a vendor. I am an editor. I am a, as a connector, as I said, and uh, information provider. You know, there's so many different things that I do, but very few of them are actually in the consultant role. role. Uh, and I did do more of that in 2020. And I, I think we should, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, um, in talking to people that were not in the business that now want to get in the business. And I found that very interesting what's been going on this year. Well, um, so really, you know, looking back on it, it's, it's a pretty poor named company. It's too long. <laughs> it doesn't accurately, accurately say what I do, but uh, it's it's what I did, and and I'm I'm doing great, no matter whether it's poorly named or not. Well, I'll tell you what. In order to make the YouTube thumbnail, I I took it and I had to remove all the white from the background, and it took me, <laughs> it took me like forty five minutes to to remove the background on the name. But I thought, you know what, it's I want a nice, a nice, this thumbnail on YouTube. It's going to last for many, many years, decades, yeah. sort of thing. So I spent the time and I went pixel by pixel where I had to, but we made it look good. Appreciate it. it good. So, so, but Dave, like, you know, when you're, when you're talking to some of these new people that are coming into the hobby, they're looking for advice and they, they find you one way or another. Number one, can you speak to how they find you? And number two, what kind of questions are you fielding from some of these new people? Sure. Um, some of them, Word of mouth, they they know who I am. Some I get pointed to or referenced to from other people in the business because someone might say, I want to get in the business or I need to know this, I need to do that. A lot of times they work for a company and they say, well, I can't really do that, but I know somebody who can. So I get referrals from a lot of my my friends and, and cohorts in the business. Uh, through my website, a lot of times I get contacts. And there's also some consulting firms that I am connected with where I get contacted for my specific 
category. So it's like a referral referral company that they it's it's almost like um, you know consultants are us. How do I find how to get into the hobby? Uh, we got this guy over here who knows this, and then they link us up together. And sometimes I find out who the company is or who the individual is, and sometimes I do it blindly, uh, where the names are not shared, but the questions are pretty obvious about you know people wanting to get in the business and. Some know more about the business than others. Some know none. They just saw a story on the news and said there's money to be made. And how can I get in here and do that? So, you know, I've handled all different kinds over the last year or so. Okay. So so are you finding that some of these people coming in that are, that are reaching out to you, are they asking for really, are they trying to gain an under, just simply an understanding of the hobby, the, the different facets of it? Or are they looking for like investment type advice or, or a combination? Less of the latter, but a lot of times it's they, they, they know a little and they know they know a little and they want to know, what am I missing? This seems too easy. You know, grading, this seems too easy. You know, I buy a 75% piece of plastic and have a guy look at it and seal it up and I, I make $40. What am I missing? Well, you know, they're missing a lot. They, they, and but the good thing is though, they're asking though, they know that it, you know, what don't, what don't I know? Well, what you don't know is you have to have in the grading process. It's not just the grade number. It's what is the card? Do you know what card that is? Not what they put on the form. If is what they put on the form, correct. That's a position too. People don't realize that in the grading business that, verifiers are just important part of the process as the graders that put the number on it. And they, you know, or sometimes that they're further down the road in the process where they've got the grader, they've got the system, they got the people that know the business, but where do I get plastics made in China? Or where do I get, you know, how do I just, you know, what labels, you know, how do I get labels printed or what kind of, how can I get boxes done? So, I don't know everything. No one knows everything. But a lot of times I bring the most value is that if I can bring some that I know that they don't know. And that that it happens a lot with uh, a lot of these companies to get into it. And sometimes I feel like I'm talking them out of getting in the business, but it's basically just telling them that it's not as easy as they think it is. And that's being honest. That's not forcing an agenda. It's just saying, OK, you want to do this now. It might take you. 14 months to get off the ground by then this boom might not be the boom PSA and Beckham might be caught up. Do you want to be fighting, you know, being the guy that's 20, 15 years behind your competition. So it's, it's asking the right, asking the right questions, giving them the right information about getting in the business. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what you just said had to do with, with grading. So let me ask you this. I mean, we've seen over the last, Really, it seems over the last couple of weeks, but it's probably more over the last few months, we've seen several new grading companies enter the space. And obviously, we've got the incumbents. We've had PSA, we've had Beckett, SGC, CSG with their experienced personnel. And then there's the handful, or or maybe it's a couple handfuls of, of new entrants that are coming to the hobby. You know, You've had this this bird's eye view perspective of, of it for since, since grading came around. Uh, even working at Beckett when they introduced the grading services, I'm sure. What what do you what do you see as the biggest challenges, the biggest barriers to entry 
for some of these new companies? Well, as I mentioned before, mentioned before, it's it's the understanding of the process, and that's again not just putting a number on a piece of paper. Um, a lot of times, it's um, diffusing the comments or questions regarding AI. Hey, why don't I put the card, run the card through a scanner, and that'll grade it for me? Well, uh, what I have seen and what I believe is that that might work on surface, and that might work on edges, and in some ways, it might work on corners. I'm sorry, but I, it may not work so well on surface. It may not work so well on authenticity. A counterfeit, I mean, without a human eye, might pass and get a good grade. So again, there, there's things that they uh, they have to consider everything. And then the other thing to consider is liability. You're going to be holding these cards for how long? And you're going to be storing them where? And what's going to happen if there's a fire? You know, there's 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 things that people don't consider in the whole in the whole process. And you know, I've dealt with some people at various ends of the spectrum of their understanding, and some are well down the line, and other ones after my 90 minute phone call, they're not interested in the business. <laughs> you know, I think one, one of the questions I have uh, that I would put to all these new newer companies that are coming in is really, you know, I think to, to grade a card, whether you, you're using AI or just human subjective uh, assessments, um, you know, that to me is, is more straightforward because Corners can be, or centering can be measured. Edges can be eyeballed. Um, corners can be eyeballed under under magnification. Surface, you know, you need to ha- you need to be able to to catch everything that that might be that might exist on the surface front and back. But it, to me, it is authenticity is kind of the one thing that uh, that's where I put most of my trust in the in the incumbents versus some of the newer uh, up and comers. So. You know how how do how can these new up and comers um, circumvent that? How how can we and how can we as a hobby, uh, we as their potential customers, how can we how can we have faith that they are properly authenticating the cards? I mean, again, grading I think is the easier part. What about and do you agree with me? Is grading the easier part versus the authentication? And how can they how can we be confident in their authentication skills? Correct. I, in, in general, I would agree. Yeah, that that is that is true. But also the in the authenticity part is is the identification part. I mean, we all know what these crystal prism zebra stripe parallel retail only blaster insert. I mean, who knows this stuff? You you pull up this card. How do you know where this card came from just by looking at it? The card companies don't do the grading companies and the authenticators and that any favors by saying this is exactly where this came from they don't do that and that's the complexity of this business that only comes through having the right experts and that is one of the biggest challenges that all the grading companies are having right now and anybody new coming in the business will continue to have is hiring these experts who are these experts where do you find these experts are these experts willing to work for what you're willing to pay them? That, like you said, the, the old the old guard or the people that have worked at Beckett on the gradings for 10, 15, 20 years, same at PSA, they got graders that have been there 10, 15, 20 years. That is the true value of those companies. 
And as they try and ramp up or hire more people, they're finding tremendous challenges there. And your first thought would be, there's a lot of people in this business. People would love to work for Beckett. People would love to work for PSA. But the thing that you have to realize is that the people that are the sharpest and know all that stuff, it's very easy to make a lot more money sitting right here in front of my computer than it is to work 40 hours a week for X amount of money, you know, working in an office, working for a company. The people that know their stuff, they can use that knowledge to make money. So yeah. it's, it's hard to find somebody willing to work for what they're willing to pay versus what an expert can do with that money. I mean, we could go to that Dallas card show in two weeks and I can find you 50 qualified people. 49 of them would say pass, <laughs> you know, yeah. in, in, in working in the industry because the money they're making at that table or their money or they're walking around the room is much greater than what they're going to make at, at, at that corporation. Yeah. So, I mean, the money that when you say the money that they could make at the car or in the computer, that that's kind of a newer thing in the last year or so when the hobby's been on, a, on an upswing. You know, if you look over the over the past uh, year since really since, I guess, early 2020. Um, but and, and as part of that does, I believe, assumes that, that that will continue to be the case. And I mean, I hope I hope the hobby stays strong and it will. But um you know, I, I guess I kind of, I kind of, for for me as as a as a customer, as a collector, um, and as an investor in in sports cards. Again, an investor by consequence. Uh, I'm I get most comfortable knowing that the cards I have are graded by people with experience because you know that that's where I can I can put my trust. So, and you know that that's just my 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 approach. Uh, I don't I don't have to put that on anybody else, but. That's what I find to be sort of um, the way that I get comfortable because, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned the identification and to me, yeah, I, 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 I kind of glossed over that, but the identification is hugely interesting. I would, I got, I had the opportunity to visit PSA's offices and get kind of get behind closed doors back in 2009. And I, I mean, we're already 12 years ago. And I remember one thing that sticks out to me, I can still see it pretty vividly was the research room. And the bookshelves filled with resource materials. If you're a new company starting, do you have that resource material ready and available? And where do you get it if you don't? They've been, I mean, PSA has been around for a long time, has been building that over years and years. And again, that's already 12 years ago. I'm sure they have much more at this point. So, you know, I don't want, I don't, I, I'm not. I'm not saying these things because I don't want to see any new entrepreneur succeed in the business. I certainly do. But at the same time, I, ha I as a collector have to balance that with where do I, where do I trust my, my authentication, identification and grading to come from. So I think that, you know, I think those are some of the biggest uh, hurdles for these new companies is to just get the trust of, of the hobby. Exactly. And luckily, you know, we have the internet, which, when a lot of these grading companies began, we really didn't have that. And there is a lot of research material and available online, but it's, it's, it's not complete. I mean, the, there's new products being released every single week and multiple of them. So to have this, the people with the skill to be able to identify those things is uh, is a critical, critical issue. And the other thing that I've cautioned those, the people about entering the business is the, uh, the potential of a fatal mistake is that they can do a year of preparation, hiring, grading, 
building slabs and get marketing and everything. And they kick out the door a couple of cards that have the wrong name on it or are counterfeit or both. A few of those start circulating. Are you trusting them? You know, and now with the Internet, that's that those images get around quickly. So, you know, you have the potential of investing a lot, having a couple employees make a fatal error and the business can be sunk. Yeah. I, you know, I'm just while we're here talking about this and, you know, I, I just want to put it out there. If anyone watching is a, a new an entrepreneur, an employee of, of any new grading company that aren't the, the long term incumbents, I do invite you to reach out to me and invite you on to the show so we can learn and share what it is you're doing and what, what sets you apart. If you'd like to do that, I, that's an invitation I'm going to put out there right now. Um, okay, I do want to say good evening to Bobby Burrell, hobby historian and uh, longtime uh, someone I'm sure you're, you're aware of that you, you are familiar with, Dave. Uh, David Talbot asks, how does a virtual card show work? And um, I'm just going to put out there to anybody who, uh, who was not at the last, the first two virtual sport card expos, that um, the upcoming one on June 19th and 20th, I will be doing a sort of a, a preview of it and we'll go through how it works. So be sure to watch the channel and I'll be talking about when that episode is going to come up. It's not that far away. It'll, it'll be next month. I want to say hello to Sports Card Seller. I want to say hello to Todd McDonald. Uh, Card Canuck says, I want to see these new grading companies accurately grade low-grade vintage cards. Fair comment. That people don't realize that it's actually harder to grade a three than it is to grade a, a nine people. Yeah. And before I even explain it, just think about it. Just think about how many flaws you have to digest versus looking for one flaw. It's easier to grade a nine or a 10 that is grade a three or a four. I, and you know what, I, maybe a part of it is that, and the way I look at, at the grading scale, the one through 10 with a half grades is that the, the, the margin of condition gets narrower and narrower as you get up the scale, right? A, a 10 needs to be, there's, there, you know, I've always said there's an infinite number of conditions of cards out there, millions and millions of different conditions. To say there's only 10 or whatever it is, 19 with a half points, I mean, we need the 10-point scale, but there's, there, there's millions of potential conditions that a card can be in, not 18 or 19 of them or, or 20, whatever it is. So, you know, a 10 is going to be very, flaw not flawless, but it's going to have very few flaws or imperfections. Whereas a, a one, I mean, there, there are nice looking ones and there are very ugly ones out there. Uh, so the, the margin or the, the, the width of that, gra of that grading uh, scale for a zero to a one or a one to a two, I believe they're pretty wide. And, and how, you know, how do you decide where that cutoff is? Or how do you assess that cutoff? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, and that might also come up if we start talking about the investing angle is that the, the other thing that people don't think about is when they're looking at comps, they just assume a nine is a nine and a 10 is a 10. There are better looking nines that are both nines and there are better looking tens that are both tens. You know, the flaw can be a different flaw, but they both get knocked down one grade and some people for some for the other. So I think that is that is a, you know, something that probably needs to be thought about by some of these investors is when they see something, they say, oh, man, that one, it's crashing. The market's collapsing. That didn't get what the other one got. Well, are we really looking beyond the number? Yeah, we because you have to, especially at that high end. And 
BGS tried to address that by having the subgrades, but even within the subgrades now, with the money that is being spent, which subgrade or how bad is that is you know is is that surface or you know where can you see it is it on the back is it on the front so just looking at a number and looking at a a, a great number and a price it's not a, it's not always a fair comp and it's no. a, it's an opportunity for sharp people and it's 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 a concern for people that aren't paying attention yeah, I, I agree. You know, you want you'd like to think that if you were to compare PSA sixes of the same card, that it is apples to apples, but it, it just isn't because there are thousands of different PSA six potent cards can look a thousand different ways and still be a PSA six. So I've noticed it in PSA fours. I have a very strong four, a very weak four, and thankfully the sophisticates in the in the hobby in the market they they do. Uh, they do assign higher values to nicer grades. The sophisticated people, though, but but someone who's just getting in isn't aware of right. this, and that's where the new people need to get educated uh, to to be able to not make mistakes. And you know, you know, the last PSA six, um, I don't know, Bobby or rookie could have been could have been really an ugly six, and then right. Uh, right. Or, or let me re, let me go the other way. It could have been a beautiful six. It could have been a high end six. And then the next six comes out. They say, oh, well, the last six sold for twenty five thousand. Here's a six. It's a six. I'm going to buy. I'm going to bid twenty five thousand dollars on it. But really, that might be ten thousand more than the next person would have paid. So it's important. Uh, it's definitely important to understand that not all sixes, sevens, eights are the same. Exactly. And and not that they're not. We're not even saying that they're wrong. They could be both correctly sixes. Yeah but they have a difference that might be a preference to more people than others. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, if you look at a PWCC auction on eBay where they talk about the technical grade assigned and it's, that's the important uh, wording. There is the technical grade assigned is not the eye appeal grade. Those are different things. So correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to go to a couple comments here. Rich Klein says, I honestly think one thing which should be done at any of the companies which handle cards is to outsource to remote like Dave was with Beckett Baseball. He goes on to say, to outsource some customer service, one person at home, office to be a liaison, an ID consultant, getting scans, and any other positions which can be done and not be in the office. As we've learned in 2020, 2021, the more that can be done from someone's home, the better off the company is. And I mean, Rich works at ComC, one of the companies that has, has sort of suffered from the 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 pandemic and the uptick in the hobby the most more than more than some other companies so he definitely knows what he's talking about and i think that's a, a good plan uh from rich uh, another hobby industry veteran who's been around uh, even longer than you dave right yes no no question yeah. <laughs> he, he preceded me at beckett by i think just about a year a little under a year but um yeah we we have great stories of, where we first met at the national in 1989. So we even knew each other before either of us worked at Beckett. Okay. Uh, Steve Menzi, uh, who owns the sport card expo, the virtual expo, he says, number one is authenticity number. In, and we're talking about importance in, in the important things in a, with grading. And I believe a grading company. So in Steve's opinion, number one is the authenticity or the ability to authenticate. I believe he's saying number two is access to a database and pop report. Yeah, that's hugely important. Number three is the secondary market where true market value is determined. Yes, very important, but a you know, that's going to be a huge, a huge challenge to any of the newcomers because they're starting from scratch. 
So that's pretty. Uh, that, so let, I appreciate that of those those comments, Steve. Let's go to Bulldog Trading. He says hi from Chicago, Dave. What would you say is that little bit extra in a card that would take it from a nine point five to that rare ten grade? Now he must be talking about Beckett grading services because we know PSA doesn't offer nine point five. So with respect to Beckett grading cards, um, I think you probably just need to look at it the other way. Is that what is it that keeps it from being a ten? Not you can't add something to make it a 10 is what is being taken away that makes it the nine five. So again, it's, it's centering corners, edges, surface, which one of those is not fully perfect to get to the 10. And and that's why they have the subgrades is it should tell you if you got three, three you know, th- a couple of nine fives and a, and a 10 or, or three tens and a nine five, it, it should tell you, you know, what is missing? Everything has got to be there. You can't look at something and say, oh, this is a 10 except for a 10 doesn't have an except for. Right. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of people have played that uh, the resubmission game where they, you know, they have a card. It's a say it's a BGS 9.5 with with all with a what they call a true gem or nine. All, all the subgrades are nine five. Uh, sorry, they'll have a true gem plus. So two nine fives and two tens. And you need that third 10 to bump it from a 9.5 to a 10 overall. Correct. My understanding has been that the, I think it's that the easiest place to get that is going to be on surface. So if the surface is a 9.5, that's going to be your best chance to be bumped to a 10. Uh, That's just what I've been told by people. I think who have played that game a little bit. Does that resonate with you? Does that make sense to you? Generally, generally, yeah. that's probably correct. Um, you know, the resubmit game can happen anywhere. I mean, again, the grading process is human. Uh, if you honestly feel like, hey, they missed, they they were a little too tough on this, and I'm going to take a chance. You know, I want to resubmit it again. That it, a lot of times it's not specifically where the flaw was located, but you are correct on, on surface. Is that, um, and it goes the other way too. Is that maybe somebody caught it? the first time and they're gambling again and thinking that surface mark is so minor. Maybe if I send it through again, they're not going to catch it this time. So generally that is an accurate statement, uh, but it it can't happen in any of the four categories. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Seth Gordon says, why would anyone start a new grading company makes zero business sense unless you're going to hire away grading experts from PSA, BGS, et cetera. I mean, it, you know, I, I I kind of chuckle at the make zero business sense because we don't know yet. We don't know yet if it makes business sense. You know, some of these, some of the new ones, I think the cream will rise to the top. You know, the best will survive and uh, and then it will have made good business sense for them. But thanks for the comment, Seth Gordon. Stephen Foley, uh, good evening. Great, glad to have you as always. And uh, AJ15 Card says, is, is the, are there classes people have to go through to be a grader or to work for a grading company? Can I, I got a bit of a response to that, but Dave, do you have a, can you speak to that? Not outside of the company. I mean, there's not a grading university or anything like that. Um, you know, they each grade and train their own employees. Um, back at it, it used to be very difficult to even begin grading. I mean, they would start employees in the verification process where, you know, you, you don't begin to think about putting a number on a card for, for a year. Again, used to be. What's happening now, I can't speak to. And, um, but they were very, very concerned about letting somebody grade, you know, until they were very comfortable with the process. So 
each company does their own training verification. Becca's testing was pretty rigorous. I mean, there would be tens to hundreds of people apply and you'd be surprised. They'd just say, you know, no, you're just not going to cut it, you know, and that would come through even test grading is that, you know, here, what do you think this is? And if they were close and it was something that could be taught, there's a prospective employee, but if they're just completely not, you know, not getting it, they more want to be there than should be there. You know, that, that's, um, you know, that's where the, it's hard to find, find employees in this business. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's what my answer would basically be is that, no, there's no course. There's no, there's no preordained course that's out there for that. All the graders for all, all the potential graders go to, whether you're going to get a job at, at PSA Beckett or any of the other companies. Um, but rather these companies have employees with, with years and years of experience that pass that knowledge on. And that's the key is that they're passing it on to the new, the new, the new graders. And I, I love when you said that, you know, they, they would just let somebody go if they weren't getting it. It seems to me like you need to have a bit of a knack for it. You have to have an eye for it and that it, that it may be, it, it's teachable to the extent that the, that the candidate is, is coachable and, and can learn it, can learn those skills and pick up on it. So um, do you think, do you think Dave, that in order to be a grader, it helps to have to be a collector to come from a collecting background. How, how many? Like, let me ask it to you this way: How many years of hobby, hobbying would you say somebody needs to be a grader, if any? That's interesting because I don't. My first response would be: Is I don't know if they would have to be, but I've never heard of one that wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I don't. I've never even seen an applicant or someone interested in being a card grader that wasn't in the hobby. So it, it kind of goes hand in hand. Um, I would, I would hope or think that it, a minimum would be a five to 10 years. And again, if that was, if, if it was only five, but it was working in a card shop and they did a lot of business with ungraded cards and you know, it's what was that five years? Were they just a collector for five years? Probably not enough. Yeah. But did they have real hands-on experience working at a card show, working at a card shop, handling cards? You know, it, it just depends on what that experience was. But I'm thinking minimum 10 years, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm with you. That's what I would like to see in, in some of these new companies. And again, I'm going to put that invitation out there. If anyone is watching is with a new grading company, please reach out. Let's get you on the show and let's let's talk about what you're doing and uh, and you know I want I want to give everybody a fair shake. So, um, or if anybody's looking for a job, I can point you in the right direction. <laughs> there you go. Reach yeah. out. Reach out to Dave. We have yeah. his uh, Instagram handle is is floating on the ticker as we speak. Uh, Eric Perry said variance between cards with the same numeric grade can be massive. Centering, for instance, can make a major difference in hammer price. One hundred percent, Eric. I completely agree with yeah. that. Card Collector says, man, this information from Dave is awesome. Great guest as always, Jeremy. Loving it. Thank you, Card Thank Collector, you. 1982. Let's see. I see we have some stuff from uh, Brian Gray below. We'll get to those. Uh, Stephen Foley says, would it make sense just to grade on a 100-point scale? And Seth says, SGC used to do that. And then they they just got away from that semi-recently. And I think it's yeah. – I think they – well, let me ask you. Why, why do you think SGC got away from the 100-point scale? because they were the only one doing it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, they were, you know, they were third place and first place and second place in the business was just doing the, the 10 point scale. And, 
I think kind of the, it's kind of like beta versus VHS back in the day. <laughs> beta might've been better, but more people were used to the VHS. Now they're both dead, so it doesn't matter, but that's, that's my antiquated example that I think more people were, are used to it more. It's easier to explain. And I think even if we all agreed to go there, all the companies, we'd be having this conversation in 10 more years talking about the differences between a 91 and a 92. Yeah. How there can be variances in a 91. So, so. yeah. A lot harder to identify those variances anyway, for sure. Yeah. Again, it's a much, it's a narrower uh, band of, of conditions. So, um, okay, let's go to this one here. Absolute Authentic says, what efforts are being used now to curb resubmissions? Dave, are you familiar with Genement? Vaguely familiar with Genement, but regarding curbing resubmissions, why would they want to curb resubmissions? I mean, it's your card. You got it back. You didn't like the grade. You want to crack it out and send it back in. Card companies don't care. Uh, the collector, that's their choice. I, I don't, I mean, they're, they're getting paid to grade it the same card twice and they're paying the same price. Uh, I, I don't think there's any reason to curb it. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing the question or, or um, not, not understanding the angle, but um you know, the only thing that I that I think the industry suffers from in resubmissions is the population reports, because then it appears that 100 cards were graded, but it really could have been 95 and five of them were submitted twice. So from that standpoint, I wish there was a better way to have done that. But the cat's out of the bag that, you know, the horses out of the barn on that one, it, it, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to fix that. It's just, if you understand it and you know, it, you can use that information to your advantage. I mean, I think one of the things with Genement is that it's going to have this fingerprinting technology and be able to really identify whether a card has already been through the system, whether it's uh, broken out of the original holder and resubmitted or still in that holder. Um, and, and to me, what that does is it prevents the grading company from putting out a new grade. You know, one of the biggest knocks against grading that I'm aware of over the past several years is that you, you hear, you've heard people say, oh, you don't like the grade you got? Just send it back. Keep sending it back until you get the grade that you want. Now, doesn't that undermine the whole grading industry to an extent if you can just keep on resubmitting it until you get the grade you want? For that reason, I like this genuine technology that will apparently um, disincentivize people from sending the same card back, at least to PSA, who owns this technology now, uh, at least from, from sending it back to them over and over again to get that same grade. And like you said, Dave, it'll help to keep the population reports more reliable as well. So I'm... I'm still uh, getting my head around it, but I think I'm I'm of the position that I, I mean, the whole resub game, it's been, you know, I had um, Eric Myers on the show, a friend of yours a few weeks ago, and he on the, he mentioned he, he did the resub, the resub game uh, in his earlier years and made a lot of money doing it. And, you know, because if you get that re, if you get that bump, it can be very valuable, but doesn't that make the company look kind of bad if they give you a different grade on the same card at on a different date if the card remained the same it can but i think there's i think there's assumption there that if you just keep resetting resubmitting you eventually will i mean that's a false assumption i mean it, if if it's borderline enough 
you know, we are talking about third party opinion and you're, you're, you're hoping to get the guy that has the same opinion you do that it's a nine and not an eight five. Um, but I think to have the assumption that the more times you do it, the eventually it's going to happen. That, that's just false because I've even had some people, you know, I've helped some people that aren't familiar with grading to help them walk through the process. They've gotten the card back and they said, well, let's just, re- I really think that's X. And I, if I send it back, it, it should be Y. And I just say, you know, this is not going to go away. That centering is not going to change. Right. You know, you're looking at two subgrades, even if this one subgrade changes, what we call bumps, even if you get one bump, you're not getting two. And now with the grading, the, the price of grading, if it's a high dollar card, you're going to, you want to keep paying 300 bucks each time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we have to get past the idea that if you just keep doing it, it's going to work. That's just false. If it's borderline and you truly find something and it can change, you know, God bless you. Let, you know, hopefully that happens for you, but not at a $300 sub- per submission price. No, I agree. I agree. Okay. A couple of comments. And I just have a question I want to ask you. Uh, Eric Perry says newcomers sometimes treat graded cards like commodities with no regard for the subtleties. This creates opportunity for savvy collectors. Experience matters. Yeah. Very well said, Eric. Yeah. 100%. And that, that goes back to my comments about why they can't hire graders because people that understand what he just said, they can use that knowledge to make money. Yeah. You know, do you want to use that knowledge to make PSA money? Yeah, you get a salary, but I mean, you, you know what I'm saying is that if you understand those intricacies, you can use that to your advantage. You know, I've uh, I learned this going to the national. Uh, gosh, probably the first it was a, sp- a certain dealer that I bought a vintage card from at the national going back to maybe 2010, 2011. And I'll tell you the dealer in a second, but he's, he basically, all of his cards were priced high, higher than comps. And I kind of looked at him, I, I thought, wow, that, yeah, that much? He goes, yeah, it's strong for the grade. And and then I'd go to another card. I'd say, yeah, he'd go, it's strong for the grade. <laughs> and then then we, we had a conversation. He explained to me that he only buys cards that are strong for the grade. So every card in his showcase was strong for the grade and aggressively priced. Well, let me tell you, I made it. A, I made it a mission that every national I bought at least one card from him because I like. I like my cards to have strong eye appeal because I'm like, wow, that's a great card. But whoa, the price compared to what I'd look at on eBay, you know, the recent sales. So, if you if you have an eye for it, and this, his name is escaping me. He's a doctor. His, he goes by Card Country, and he sets up with a gentleman by the name of Brady who has like the most amazing pre-war. Uh, vintage baseball card collection at his booth. It's just like an unbelievable uh, array of cards. I don't know if you're familiar with these guys or not, but they've been setting up the national together for at least 10 years. And um, I bought cards from both of them over the years. And every card I bought from them is very strong for the grade because, you know, that's, I like eye appeal. So I'm glad it's true and not just what he's saying. No, it, it's true. I, Some I will, people will say that and it not be true. And that's and that's <laughs> another thing. Be careful. You know, you have to be able to assess the vendor you're buying from, you're dealing with, as well as the cards they're selling, because it's so easy. And people listening right now might, you oh, I'm just going to tell people they're strong for the grade. Well, now if you hear that at the next show later yeah. on this month, make sure you know for yourself or bring in an expert at the show. Ask a buddy to come take a look at this card and make sure it truly is strong for the grade. Yeah. 
I'm gonna put that on a T-shirt. I got that <laughs> my idea, everybody. Strong for the grade. That's my I'm, T-shirt. I'm strong for the grade. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Okay. Uh, Brian Gray says that Beckett needs graders badly. Oh, sorry. We're going to start up here with this earlier comment. He says new grading companies have an incredible opportunity with the holes in the market. While they may not garner the long-term respect of the leaders, they can make lots of money for now. Okay. And he says Beckett needs graders badly. If you have basic skills, they could be there could be an opportunity to learn the job and make a nice living. And I have to think that the pay scale is better than it's ever been to be a grader. That's an assumption. I don't know. I've, I've never been offered a job at a grade. I don't know what they pay, but I have to think it's better now than it's ever been. Do you have any insight into that? Not exactly, but I can say what you just said is a fact. Yeah. You're, you're going to get more paid more now than you did before because there's more competition for those positions and they need people. And I say they, I'm not just saying BGS. I'm saying Beckett, HGA, all of them. PSA, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Chris Dornick, uh, when a card is being graded, does the grading company trust their graders to have their best judgment or is there a set of guidelines to follow? Do you know, uh, I mean, you, you go to any of their websites and they they tell you what their grade point is, what the grade scale is, and they tell you how many flaws each grade point can have and what the centering needs to be. I've seen that on PSA. I'm pretty sure I've seen it on Beckett's website as well. So I, there are guidelines. I think that goes, well, it goes with saying. Do you agree? Uh, I agree, because I think that's one of the first things that they're going to say is that this is BGS's or PSA's opinion of of uh, of the grade. The slab is not going to say, you know, Chris Dornick's opinion. It's going to say Beckett's opinion. And right. Beckett is going to train their employees within that within those guidelines as as is PSA, you know, as is SGC and all the rest is that, yes, I would think any good card company is going to train them not to give their opinion, but to give the opinion of which they've been trained to give. So Brian Gray says highly experienced graders can make $100,000 plus. Uh, he goes on to say senior grader level guys. And I mean, to me, you know, if you're going to give up the hobby to be a grader, I mean, the junior guys have to be making a hundred grand. I, I don't know who you're gonna, I don't know who you're gonna get for under a hundred thousand dollars at this at this stage of the world with all the all the new money that's been printed out there. We've, yeah. seen, we've seen inflation, right? Uh, what are your thoughts? What 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 do you think it would take to to get somebody out of the hobby to be a grader, like salary wise? That is, you know, and that's the problem is that when he's talking about that hundred level, that's not somebody off the street. That's somebody that's been at, at one of the companies for two to three to five years. I mean, they're not going to risk that kind of number off the street. Yeah. So I, I, I don't. Again, I'm I'm not quoting facts from any individual company, but I, be, I would hope that they are in the fifty to sixty range, right in the front door. Yeah, yeah. Rich Klein says, if you're a PSA, for example, why would you not want to accept resubs? Uh, the user has to pay for the card to be graded or regraded. So why not? I mean, my my response to that, and I I could be wrong. Well. Uh, I can think of two reasons. Number one, um, th the backlog, although that will be that will be addressed and move will move forward from that. But number two, I, I think is, I mean, is just the fact that do you want a do you want the same card to get a different grade on two different days? And to me, that's a that's a consistency issue that we we need to be comfortable that that you're going to get the same the same grade every time that same card is sent in, and and there's risk that that wouldn't happen. So it's reputational. 
uh, from my perspective. But I'm, you know, that's very that might be very naive of me to say because the almighty buck might rule. What do you think? No, I I I think that is true. They would feel the same way. They don't want to be have to correct themselves. They don't want to have an error that has to be corrected. They they are striving for that consistency all the time. But at the same time, we're we're humans and we're going to have good and bad days and we're going to catch things and we're going to miss things. And that's just the nature of, of what we're looking at. It's, it's not a science. It's not it's not scientific to, you know, to find these flaws. So, I, I, yes, they are striving for for that resubmission program to not work. Yeah. But but sometimes it, it just it, it can be worth it. Well, and that's what this Genement technology is going to do, whether PSA likes it or not, is it's going to let them know if a card's been submitted before. So so if, if you want to pay them to look at it again and they already know what they graded the card last time, well, go ahead, give them another 300 bucks or whatever it is, and you're going to get that card back with, with the same grade. So, See, to you know, me, right? To me, to me as a consumer, I don't like that because once you take it out of the holder, the previous grade is invalid. You could have nudged, nicked, scraped, but in, in that process. Agree, but the card's not going to get. It's not going to go up in condition. It's not going to get into better condition. It's only going to go down in condition if something happens to it. Correct. But if a grader is given a previous grade in advance of looking at the grade, I don't like that. I think it should be looked at on its own merits at the time that it, it's in his hand. So the now, co- corporately, if they want to know after the fact. They say, previously, we saw this was a nine, and now you're giving it a 10. Corporately, I hope that that is when they look at it, but yes. not as if they're telling the grader that, hey, here's here's this card that came in last week. It was a 10 last week. What do you think of it now? That's That would be bad. And I would, as, as a submitter, I wouldn't like that. So, but and the, the solution, you, you, you kind of glossed over the solution to that, which is, the grader would regrade the card without knowing what the previous grade was. It would be a blind grading. You would then assess it. And if it's different, then maybe it has to be looked at closer to make sure, did it really go down? Did the condition really get worse? And if it got stronger, maybe it needs a way. And I mean, it's not to say that they won't bump it up. If you get a team of guys, Hey, I looked at it. I don't see why this was a 10, a nine last time. This is definitely a 10. Gentleman tells us the card hasn't been altered or affected or, paper added back or anything like that. So let's, maybe we got to bump the grade up. And if that's the, if that's the, what, how they would run the Genement addition to the, to the PSA process, I'd be okay with that. But the great, yeah, you can't bias the grader by letting them know the grade previously. And I, I think PSA would be smart enough not to do that, but I'm not behind closed doors. So not, not, not exactly sure. We, we hope. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, I wanted to welcome Toa Hang to the show as always. What's up with you, buddy? AJ15 makes, uh, I mean, this sums it right up there. Buy the card, not the grade, you know? Buy, buy the card, not the grade. But, but you I want say that all the time. Be, yeah, you want the card to be authentic. That's, that's the key to all of it, I would say. Uh, PSA Slab Guy says, I heard Nat talk recently about trying to cut down or eliminate resubmissions using the technology. Long-term benefits of brand slash grade integrity outweigh short-term revenue. See, that's why I'm so happy about the new leadership at PSA because I think Nat understands these concepts and and will will put the long-term. Nat's a young guy. This isn't a 60-year-old dude who bought PSA. He's in his 30s. He's got... 
he's got a lot of years left to deal with this company and its reputation and the brand. So I think he's going to be much more uh, long-sighted than short-sighted or looking much further out than just worrying about, um, you know, getting a bunch of resubmissions in right now to, to pump up the revenue. So at least I hope so. Okay, um, we got the comments are coming in. Lots of great stuff here, guys. We do have other things to talk about. And we, this isn't just the grading episode, but I mean, obviously the chat wants to hear about it. I do have a question for you. It's on grading, Dave. My question is, as somebody who's worked with, you know, worked in the industry, you know, people at the companies, and I'm just a, I'm a collector and I read, I read postings on all sorts of platforms. And one of the postings I read, and I read a couple of these today, actually on Instagram, people have long time accused grading companies of giving special treatment to certain submitters, uh, maybe, maybe taking, you know, maybe greasing the palm sort of thing. I like to think it doesn't happen, but I mean, I don't know. I'm not there, so I don't know for sure. What's what, you know, based on your, your place in the hobby, what do you, what do you think? It's pretty, it's pretty easy for me to say, Oh no, that doesn't happen. But I, I, but this, I know the systems that are in place that the grader look when he's looking at the card, he does not know who submitted the card. Now, are there a ways around that or can that be cheated? You know, that would take a, a pretty large internal conspiracy to, you know, to make, to make that happen. Um, but the general systems, especially, you know, my experience from Beckett, I mean, I know how that goes, that the grader has no idea whose card he's grading and, and far from it. And for him to figure it out or try and do that, you know, other people are going to have to know it, it. So, you know, even before Beckett started, I heard that about PSA. If you heard, if you submitted a certain number, you're guaranteed a certain percentages of tens. Well, I didn't believe that then. I don't believe that now. Um, there's just too much integrity in these companies, as you mentioned earlier and talking about, I want to trust these people. If that was going on, it would show up in the product where you would see over and over and over cards that do not look like they meet the standard because they got through the system in some other, you know, cheated way. Uh, so call me, call me naive, but, I've been on the side and I've seen some systems and I also just don't believe it's, it's worth the risk for, for that to even happen. I mean, can there be wayward employees and have there been things probably caught, but I don't think ever, you know, caught having after the fact, but, you know, maybe caught trying to, or trying to do something, but no, I, I, I have a hard time believing that that is a real issue. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I hope it is not. And I, I don't, I, I have, I'm in the same position as you. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, sort of take that leap of faith. Uh, I'm sure people out there call me naive right now and maybe you as well, but that's okay. You, you can have, you know, there, there's, there's some people that are just skeptical by nature. Um, and uh, I think there, I think it's healthy to have a degree of, of skepticism. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trained as a, as a, as a financial statement auditor. And when you go into a, a client, you go in with what they call professional skepticism. So you're, you're on the lookout for fraud, but you don't assume everyone's committing it. You know, Correct. that's called professional skepticism. I approach the hobby and the companies within it in the same way, because 
it, it works. It works. Yeah, it works mostly in the capital markets. Um, so it should hopefully work a lot, uh, somewhat similarly in the hobby. Um, okay, here's another one I want you to address from Seth Gordon. He says, "There's been talk recently about PSA giving less tens. Any truth to population control at work here? Now we don't know the truth, but we can opine on it. So, Dave, what do you think?" I can't say that I've heard the same thing. Is that there that the impression is since the volume is so high that it's it's been getting tougher. Same as your last question, I would like to see some evidence as opposed to some opinions. So is is that true? Uh, I don't know. Of course, I don't know the answer. I, again, I would have a hard time believing that somebody walked through the grading room and said, let's make things a little tougher over there, okay? I, I, I can't believe that that would be a, a, an edict or that that would be an instruction. I don't know who they're helping, including themselves, you know, by doing that. So, again, I, if you could, you know, show me some evidence and we can talk. But right now I'd have that hard, hard time believing that is fact. And there's so many things that are thrown out like out there like that, that, again, they're they're based in confusion. They're based in opinion. They're based in anger. Yeah. You know. We heard it all the time at Beckett when I was working on price guides that the different theories and things of why prices went up or why they didn't go up. And, you know, sitting there hearing it and then knowing what was going on on the other side, you're just you, you just go, where did they come up with this? Yeah. Where is this coming from? You know, before pre-internet, one of my favorite ones was that, you know, Jim's two sons own a card store. And that's why Frank Thomas 90 Leaf went up and yada, yada, yada. Well, he, that's so far from the truth. He doesn't even have a son, let alone them owning a card shop. So, I mean, again, let's 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 not worry about rumors and opinions. Let's try and find some evidence. Yeah, I like that approach a lot. I want to call up here because uh, Maestro Domus brings up a really good point in how a how a card can actually get into better condition than the first time it was submitted. And I didn't think of this when I was first speaking. So I'm going to definitely um, think this way now because, yeah, you can clean up fingerprints from a card, maybe, you know, whatever it might be. You, you can actually clean up a card without... Uh, altering that card. I, 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 and I think fingerprints is the best way. I can't tell you how many group breakers I've seen with these nice chromium finished cards and they, they, they put their, they, they put their fingers on the front surface of the card in the back. And that's, that's going to transfer the oils on your fingers onto right. that card, whether you washed your hands or not, there's going to be something there, especially by the time you get to the, you know, later on in that box or that case. So there's something to be said for someone will submit a card without wiping off fingerprints or with there being a fingerprint on them. And then, you know, you can clean up and you can get that bump in surface grade. So I do want to thank Master Domus for bringing that to my attention. I did not think of that on the fly earlier in the show. So great can point a, there. Please. Now let's go to the gentleman situation. How, how is that going to affect them? We're talking, say that card had a big fat fingerprint. They wiped it off. It's not doctoring. They didn't do anything nefarious. And now that goes in, but the system is going to say that at a worse grade. And now as a better grade, what does PSA gentlemen do with that information? They reassess. I think they have to reassess. They have to get more than one person on it and they have to look, they have to spend more than whatever time is allotted per card currently. 
and they have to look at that and they have, you know, these are going to be those exception cases that are going to, that are, you know, you got the, you got the, the conveyor belt and then every 10th card goes that way instead of that way. Right. Yeah. Those ones need a special team to look right. at and say, okay, something we didn't get it right the first time for whatever reason, we're going to bump this one up. And that's, I got no issue with that. And, you know, to, and, and I think Rich, Rich Klein down here says, all those comments are proving my point. I, I think he might, I, I'm sorry, Rich, I don't know what comment that was because we're already 11 minutes old here, but um, I do think that that might be what he's maybe getting at. So I forgive me if I'm wrong, Rich, but uh, you know, is that there may be some instances where the grade will go up and others where the grade will go down, but at least, at least they know they've seen the card before. I, I think there's some value to it to know. And, and now they can change the pop report because they know they've seen that card before. Which helps the pop reports as well. So have they addressed is will that happen? Is that a fact? Have they addressed no, that? Oh, I'm I'm okay. I'm but from my understanding of the technology and what and PSA services, this would at least um allow them to have that data, that information. So moving forward, it's not gonna help the past, but it's gonna it should hopefully help moving forward. So good. Here's another, you know, great, great chat, guys, tonight. Delon says, Do you, I think you should be able to, uh, to to rebuttal a grade, basically to to fight it or to say, you know, and one thing we, we do, we can all agree, is that when you get a card back from PSA or Beckett, aside from the subgrades on Beckett, you don't know why the card graded as it did. There's nothing telling you what the flaws were, which I think would be a nice value add. So all that said, um, what do you think, Dave? Do you think that that you should be able to uh, to to rebut a a grade? I do, but that's not going to happen in twenty twenty one. Not for free, <laughs> or or at any really at at any price beyond full price. Yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, I think that's something that Beckett was more open about when we were not in the business of 2020, 2021. But the this this just the, the 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 flow, the business, the quantity, they're just not available to have that kind of thing. I mean, you used to be able to visit with a grader or talk to somebody at the national and and say, you know, what what am I missing? What did I do here? They used to be able to have that hands-on a little bit more, but that's a tough ask right now. Um, I think that, that it's a very fair question, very fair opportunity. Just don't expect it this year. Yeah. Not without paying for it. Right. Okay. I want to read Toa's comment here. He says, you can already see all these copycat grading company. I just call them new entrants. I mean, you know, it, it, any anyone doing it is, is doing what's already being done. But uh, you can already see all these new entrants trying to enter the space with their computer grading tech and cool labels. So uh, yet no transparency on what and how. Be careful. And transparency is so important. So um, and again, I invite all these new grading companies, any of them to come on the show, reach out, let me know if you want to come on and let's, let's hear what you're doing that sets you apart, what your competitive advantages, what your experience is, all these things to address the concerns that we have been uh, putting out there today. I, I'd love to hear from all of them. Um, do you have any comments on that or, cause I want to bring the next question on, but I don't want to, if you have a comment. Yeah, I think you covered it well. So Greg wants to know to you, do you think, Future PSA 10s with the new technology will be worth more than current PSA 10s. <laughs> That's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, I don't, I, 
maybe. I'll give you a big fat maybe on that one. I think it would probably be on circum specific circumstances of low pop. I can't see it just being a general rule now. But on certain circumstances of a low pop, yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it, if there's it, only two or three of them graded and they're both the same grade, then we can talk. But um, I don't think in general, you're, when you're looking at something that there's 16,000 copies of them graded and you're saying this one was under the new technology, I don't think it's going to matter as much. Yeah. I, I, I think I hear what you're saying. I, I don't disagree. Um, I think that um, the standards themselves aren't going to change. So what what is a PSA? What defines a PSA ten now versus a PSA ten after Genement isn't going to change. So if the new technology is just better at grading, then that's one thing. But I think we have to keep in mind that I I believe that a human is still going to uh, verify or corroborate the final grade assigned. If Genement even does put a grade out there, maybe it does, but you have to think that a human is going to have to um, have you know, to have, have to, to. Right? Yep. Have, to, have to confirm that for sure. So have to. And the fact that the standard isn't going to change, what, what is defined as a PSA 10 now will still be a PSA 10 later. The other thing that I think could actually have the opposite effect and increase the value, and this is not my, my, my uh, original idea. This came from Brian Gray this morning is that if PSA does introduce some special 10, a, a pristine or some 10 plus sort of grade in the future, if they do, totally speculating, all of a sudden there might be a run on PSA 10s that are currently out there now to try and get the, the bump to the higher level, which could throw, which could increase the value of all the PSA 10s um, historically versus what some people are kind of uh, rushing to 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 assume that they're going to come down, that they might come down in value, even though I think a lot of people are just asking the question. So here's one for you, uh, Dave. <clears throat> what are your thoughts on the price premium of PSA over BGS slabs? Is it sustainable? Good question, because there's no doubt that it has expanded in the last couple of years, which uh, kind of has been a surprise to me. Um, you go back a few years ago and you could pretty safely say that a BGS 9.5 was equal to a PSA 10 in most cases. And that's just, you can't just blindly say that anymore. Um, do I think it'll, that BGS will catch back up? Uh, is it sustainable? Tough question, but right, right now it, it is, you know, there, there is some truth to it. I, I, I uh, it's just hard, to, difficult to predict. It, it, it's going on. Yeah. I, I think it really comes down to brand equity more than anything and just consumers perceptions and, and influencers, influencers out there. There's like that. The famous one is Kendrick Perkins coming out and saying, if it ain't PSA 10, I don't want it. Something like that. Right. Right. And, and that, that has an impact on people. Uh, so, you know, but these things can change. These things can change over time. And for now, I think there's no disputing the PSA, has the biggest share of, of the market, I, I think. I don't know these stats, but that's my perception. So I'm going to leave it at that. I won't say for sure. That's my perception. And until that changes, um, you know, that they're they're going to get the premiums. And I think more people do uh, play on their population reports as well than any other population reports out there. I don't know. Do you? I used to think the pop that sorry, not the 
the, the, sorry, the set registry. That's what I mean. Yes. I used to think that, and I'm not sure if I still do or not, that the set registry was one of the biggest factors that set that that gave PSA that those extra value because more people were competing on the set registry. I'm not sure I believe that as much as I did before anymore, and I'm not sure. I ask you, Dave, do you think this the existence of the set registry is it as powerful as it once was? Is it is it still something that is contributing to these premiums that PSA gets over BGS? Yes and no, and and that's not a cop out answer. It's it's there are certain cards in low pop that people are trying to complete a set where that, uh, uh, for example, a 1988 Mike Krushelnitsky, where there's only a couple of tens, it matters. Yeah, you you get one in a BGS, it's it's not going to matter as much. But I can guarantee you one thing is that when that PS if a BGS 10, 8889 Krushelnitsky shows up it's getting cracked and sending a PSA anyway. <laughs> so there, yes, there's tremendous power in that pop report, but it's a smaller percentage of the market than what it used to be. The, I'll, I'll just say that, that, you know, uh, three years ago, it mattered more, not because there's less people doing it now, but there's more people collecting without that. Yeah. So, so it, it's a firm yes and no. <laughs> I you know that you're right. That that's a very that yes and no makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm a I'm a case study myself. I was very active on the set registry, and I actually found it was causing me to car, to buy cards I didn't really want. Like I don't need <laughs> I don't need 360 yeah. Hall of Fame hockey players when I don't even know who who you know a couple do, a few dozen of them are. Right. So I kind of just stopped the I I don't even I I kind of stopped my registry activity and just I'll just create my own checklist sort of thing. But that, that's just that's just been my approach. So. Um, that's, and, and I guess I'm projecting that a little when I say, I don't know if that's having as much effect as it used to, but your, your Mike Crucial Niski example is, is very funny. And I just, I always wonder, how do you come up with Mike Crucial Niski? He was actually one of the, when I did my very first hockey draft in 1984 or 1985, oh, I don't know if he was even around back then, but I remember picking Mike Crucial Niski in the eighties in a hockey pool. Anyway, you know, that's, you know, that's not a random example that. I'm talking about a true situation. Okay. Okay. That that, aid, that that card is impossible to get with. I think it's centering and a print dot or something, but there's an, a crazy low number of tens uh, on that card. So it's, that wasn't just an example. That's, that's, that's a, a, that is one of them. That's a case study itself. Yeah. Okay. Um, Rodman Martinez. Welcome buddy. Says all the best conspiracy series, conspiracy theories are born on blowout. Fair enough. I mean, that seems to be where, the, where a lot of them come from. Um, and then uh, Todd McDonald says, what is your opinion on sheet cut cards? And to be clear, and I know you know, Dave, but to be clear for the audience, we're talking about cards that are not pack pulled and that were not cut at the factory, but were cut by somebody other than the manufacturer at a later date. What do you think? What do you think of those, Dave? Sheet cut cards. Boy, I, I sat in the center of that debate. Ooh, did you? Yeah, because Ooh. Beckett, because Beckett graded them and PSA didn't. Yes. And trust me, that was just, you know, was that right or wrong was a discussion that was had many times and probably is still happening. Um, I think BGS made the right decision that they are real cards. They were cut somewhere else. They measured to the standard. I think they should be graded. Um, 
But I also think it's kind of obvious. I think when you see a Gretzky with a clean cut like that, you know that that didn't come out of a pack. Now, if you, now if you don't like sheet cut, then don't buy that card. You you should you should know that. But am I against sheet created cards being graded? I'm not against it. No. Fair fair response. I mean, I'm thinking as you're speaking, and uh, you know, I I. I, I would I don't even know if purist or traditionalist is the right term, but I consider myself to be my approach is I want my if a card's gonna be in my personal collection, I want that card to have come out of a pack, hopefully by some kid in that in that vintage era, that decade back then. And it somehow survived through till today. That's what I want in my in my personal collection. So with that being the case, it's not fair of me to say, oh, well, no, nobody, no company should grade these or these should not be eligible to be graded. I'm we, but we do have the right to choose what we want to purchase. I agree with you. They're pretty obvious. Most of the time we just had that BVG 10 Bobby Orr sell and the seller out of Winnipeg what you know, I think he thought he was gonna get a million bucks for it. And the card only got like, it got just over 200 grand or something like that. And um, I mean, to me, that's about where, where it should have sold. There's no way that card, I think, should have sold for a million dollars. Now, if that was a PSA 9, which there's only one in the population, it's easily a million dollar card being the finest Bobby Orr rookie pack pulled um, on, on the planet. So uh, let, me, let me rephrase the question to you because what you said was you have no, you have no issue with those cards being graded. What about value-wise? Do you think, that, and everyone will choose for themselves, I understand that, right. but... For you, for you, where would you value a sheet cut? Let's use a Wayne Gretzky Opeachy rookie card as the example. If a PSA 9 pack pulled Opeachy Gretzky rookie is selling now for about $200,000, $225,000, what do you think or what would you be willing to pay if you had these funds available for a sheet cut BGS whatever, 995 or 10 Opeachy Gretzky rookie? I'm trying oh, to be that's a, sorry. That's a tough one. That that that's that's a tough one because um because like we said, I I the market the market corrects itself as it did in your example with the ore. It did not go for commensurate funds because it was she cut. And that's the the market will correct itself. And that that's why I think if I have the opinion that I, I would pay equal money and I'm happy with that, great. But as we've seen evidences in other examples, the market finds the correct levels. There's not going to be the competition for it, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be graded. Well, so I'm, I just skipped down because we're way behind in comments now. And the one that caught my eye, and I don't know, it's a Bobby Burrell makes a comment here. And I'm not sure if he's responding to somebody else. But I'm going to bring it up anyway because he makes a real. I think it's a really good point. But I want to hear your opinion, Dave. He says so. Sheet cut and trimming of a card would be basically the same thing. Why would that not be true? Why would that not be true? If you're, you know what I mean. If you're sheet cut, if you're cutting, if you're buying an uncut sheet from 1966 in 2010, and you're gonna take out your X-Acto knife or your laser cutter or your, your uh, guillotine cutter, whatever you're going to do. And you're going to now cut that card into, into the proper dimensions. How is that? And I'm asking, 
How is that not trimming? Well, it cannot, it almost cannot happen unless that card is unnaturally large. If that, if you trim a card out of a pack, it is now going to be too small. So it would not be able to be graded anyway. That's a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there are, you know, there are examples where, you know, the exceptions to the rule. I mean, we've all heard about the, the T206s that were too large. Yeah. And then they were trimmed to be the right size. And then they became these artificial high grades. Um, but again, if, if you could, if you can trim it and it still fits the standards and it's not, there's also other parts of the process like where it's been pressed, where it's been soaked, where there, you know, there's different ways to artificially affect the size. It, it can almost not be equal. I, I, you know, you, you have to artificially do something else. It has to artificially be too big or it had to artificially be soaked and pressed and enlarged. There has to be another additional process for that to be equal. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm struggling here because I'm not a guy. I mean, I, I have a, I have a Wayne Gretzky rookie card that I just sent into PSA and I just got it back. This one right here. PSA authentic. I knew it was trimmed when I bought it, bought it at the expo, fully knew it was trimmed, but I was okay with it. You know, I paid fair yeah. and I knew I'm going to get it slabbed. And I, and I'm, and I said to PSA, make sure you slab this. I, I wanted to say, well, I want you to slab it, even though I know it's trimmed, put trimmed on. They didn't put trimmed. It just says authentic. So whatever that means, but I could tell it was too small. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you are, and I think this, you know, I think some cards are trimmed innocently, like kids just do it and then they survive. So that, that's not, you're not trying to be fraudulent. That's not a right. fraudulent case, but there are cases we, as we well know, where cards are being trimmed from a fraudulent, uh, with fraudulent intentions. Correct. So if you're going to trim a card, whether you're shaving off a microscopic section of it a mic you know a, a width that is hardly hardly even uh detectable and hey some of them have gotten by grading companies over the years too you're still shaping the card you're shaping it and i'm, I'm still on this sheet cut thing so if a sheet cut card if you're shaping a sheet cut card from a sheet should it not say trimmed on it or sheet cut or something and maybe that's what maybe that's what beckett wishes they could go back and change from the beginning of time is adding that what you were in the room when they talked about it what what can what sort of light can you shed on those discussions if any if any if you don't have like if they're, if you are able to speak to that did they consider identifying those issues i i, I can't speak to whether it was considered or not considered we can we can say what was decided yeah. <laughs> because we're here this is where we are um but I think I think it's not a hundred percent. I mean, you, you were, I mean, we're talking about seventy nine eighty Opeachy, where it's apparent, the or rookie, it's apparent. You, you trim down a ninety two ninety three tops off a sheet, it's not going to be as apparent because a lot of times the same guillotine cutting that was used to create the real cards out of the real pack can be done by somebody that is not the card company. So it would almost be disingenuous to label some. I know this is sheet cut, so we're going to put sheet cut on it. I'm not sure this sheet cut, so we're not. All right. I, yeah. I, th I think there was, uh, it was a too difficult 
of a decision to make at that point. And, it, and like you said, sometimes we get down the road and we can't, you know, we, we can't put the, you know, we can't put the cat back in the bag or whatever, yeah. <laughs> however you want to say it. No, it's I kinda, can't. Damage has been done on the population and it would be almost worse to start now than, than to just let it ride. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And, and that's the kind of, you know, you have to, it's very easy for people to say a sentence that starts with they should. Everyone likes to say <laughs> they should, but most people that say they should don't know all the factors involved because they're not on the inside. And um, you as an insider, you as someone who knows, you know, and has been in the hobby a long time, very intelligent, um, are able to 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 think that way, and I, I respect respect it greatly. Okay, let's keep let's move along. Uh, Toa Hang says someone needs to come out with a great a card grader grader have their own tech to review these graded cards. And we've seen there's Mike Baker authenticated PWCC has their own I appeal designations, which yep. I th- I think these things actually make sense. And a lot of people don't know that Mike Baker authenticated is a, is a a long time professional grader, so he's not just some guy putting a sticker on a card. I think right. that does make, that makes sense to me. Um, okay, I want to go through a couple more comments here. Uh, Steve says, admittedly, I'm new to this, but I just got a 9-0-C Opeachy Gretzky rookie back. They should have to tell me why they graded that versus the 7, or I didn't request. Yeah, you have to request no qualifiers, or they will put them on there. So that just comes with experience in grading, I would have to think. Uh, Rich says, I agree that this registry definitely... I've, the registry definitely played a role in boosting PSA's popularity. Yeah, sorry, this is an older comment, but again, I'm wondering, does it, I agree, it boosted it, but does it still have that effect for sure? Yes, on certain cards. Right, yeah, on certain, yeah. Chris Dwarnick says if PSA did release a new 10, that would just create a bigger backlog because people would resubmit their old 10, trying to get the better grade, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think for sure it would. And I completely agree that it would. Hopefully, if and when they do that, they are staffed up and their staff is trained and trained to the point where they can, uh, where they can actually um, grade properly and within, within the, the requirements of a grader. Terry Fortune is right. You have to request no qualifiers. They will put them on there. Uh, Rich Klein says all cards have to be cut from a sheet at some point. True. But does it matter that they're cut by the manufacturer or by a hobbyist in, in their wherever? in their basement or their workshop or, or, or their professional printing and cutting facility. Who knows? These are, I think Dave, I, I mean, I think these are personal preference and I don't know that we're ever going to get consensus on them. Do you? No, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Bobby's right. Rich is right. That's, but I also believe in choice that, you know, Oh, we're not going to grade this because, of of this reason well we're we're very sure that this is a real card and we're very sure that it meets the standards and measurement how and where it was cut we're not as sure so we're not going to grade it i I, i'm not in that camp but if you are then don't buy it that's 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 fine and i don't i don't begrudge you for it yeah no uh, same here here's a cool comment by sean turney says sheet cut is the same as box bottom cut then and to me, I, I agree with that. I, I actually collect, I have, I have probably five or six box bottom cards in my collection and they're very important to me. I think they're the, I think they're some of the coolest cards out there, but they totally say agree. hand cut. The, the, the PSA label actually says hand cut. And now that I've gotten into some of these uh, vintage Hollywood and music cards from, from Europe, 
they all say hand cut on them. Well, the, the, the PSA label says hand cut, which is, hey, that's great. That's transparency. I like that. And that's where, yeah, I, I just think it's, I think sheet cut cards would, would have a better rep right now in BGS holders or BBG holders if they did make that decision back in the day. But like you said, you can't go back and change it now. It's too late, but we just have to live with it and understand it as best we can. And I think that this just helped make our point from earlier. There's no other way to get a box bottom card than hand cut. Right. So as opposed to the other with the sheet cut, do we know? Do we not know? The box bottom, we know. If it's a single, it was hand cut. Yeah. So that, that's that's why it's that's why it's different. And some of the all the ones I have, you can actually see where they have the the guide, the per it's not perforated, but as if it was perforated, those those lines right. the, where right. you're supposed to cut. I right. want to see that. I don't want a sheet, I don't want a box bottom card that you do not have an obvious identification uh, or identifier that it was from a box bottom. I want that to be obvious. And to me, that's important. Whereas, you know, with, with sheet cut cards, while they also were they were they were meant to be cut from the original sheets. They weren't distributed in that in that fashion. And I think that that's an important distinction. I think so. Brian Gray jumps in here. He says, I'll buy BGS cut 9.5 on key rookies. Please email me offers. And I just want to say to Brian directly, BG, we're going to go live on after hours in about 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes. So please keep in mind, Brian, any of the key discussions from tonight with Dave that you want to touch on after, let's make sure that we, we uh, have some continuity there, my man. He says, if a card matters, me sorry, if it's a card measures, I'm in. Yeah, that make that. I mean, I, I can see that, but yep. you know, Brian's a businessman and he knows there's a market for these things, whether, you know, whether it's everybody or, 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 or just a, a niche market for it, there is a market for those things. Okay. Boy, we got lots of comments, everybody. Thank you. I want to just throw out if, uh, if you, anyone out there, if you're new to sports cards live, I want to welcome, I want to thank Dave Slipka for inviting his, his friends, his hobby friends, his hobby acquaintances, anybody uh, to the show, welcome. We do this every Saturday, bringing you, I got to say, the best guests in hobby content. So be sure to uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. we got a Facebook group by the same name, Sports Cards Live. Please feel free to join. It will ask you for a reference. Just put my name or put Dave's name, whatever. We'll get you in there. Really appreciate that. Uh, and welcome everybody to the show if you are new. Dave. I mean, we've still got, <laughs> we've got several topics that were on the agenda that we didn't get to because we've been so engrossed in, in all this other talk. Is there, so let me put it to you. Is there anything else that, uh, that you wanted to touch on before we move on? Well, we, you know, we talked about the, um, the stocks situation and, and the comparisons that, that I was able to find there that I found incredibly interesting. Um, I'm also, you know, what, whatever the, the viewers are, are most interested in, you know, is, is the past experience of, um, the early days of Beckett, is that interesting or are people more interested in, you know, Hey, how, what are things going on now? I'm, I'm open to that. Okay. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we, we'll ask, you know, any, any more, like we got a great resource here with us, everybody. We have Dave Slipka, as you know, if you've been with us for an hour, 40 minutes already, the guy has, a lot of insights, a lot of experience. So if you have questions for Dave, put them out there, put them into the chat, uh, and we will we'll address the we'll address the ones that, that, that we decide to address. Uh, another, you know, we were going to talk about the pipeline, Dave. The hobby pipeline sure. is clogged. 
So let's let's get into that for a couple minutes while we while we while I look at some of the other comments coming in the chat. So to set some context, the hobby pipeline is clogged. You referred to it as an artificial environment. What did you mean by that? 2021 is not where any of us want to be. And that might sound crazy, but we all want our cards back from PSA. We all want our cards back from Beckett. We all want our orders from, from ComC. We all want more supplies that we can't get enough of. So we can be in a better position to capitalize on this great hobby that we're in right now. So we're not, I think we're all operating in a place where we don't want to be. And that, you know, PSA is, is, is hurting us. BGS is hurting us. ComC is hurting us with their, you know, six months to get your order back or three months to get your cards uploaded. You know, everybody, everybody's pipeline is clogged and hey, great place to be in. This hobby has too much business. Wonderful. But when the when the clog is released, when everything is caught up, when all of the, that 9 million or whatever PSA has, when that hits the market 2021, 2022, when all the BGS orders are out there, when ComC is able to ship on a week or a, a three days or a five day, when we're back to our old normal, hopefully at a higher level, not just an old normal at the old volume, at the new volume, hopefully, you know, what is it going to look like? your cards that you have a pop report and there's 10 10s, how many more are sitting at PSA right now? How many more of those ungraded are coming back from ComC that we haven't been able to ship back and get to PSA or get to Beckett or get to HG, get to the new companies? What is that going to look like? And I hope that people are using that as a cautionary tale as opposed to just saying, are we in a bubble or are we not in a bubble? No, we're in a clogged pipeline is what we're in. And what is going to happen when that when that is finally free-flowing? We all want this free-flowing. We don't want to be paying $300 for a $100 rookie card. I mean, I would love to be submitting some cards right now, but it's not worth it. I use grading as being able to take a $10 or a $15 or a $20 or a $50 card up, you know, 10 20 50 100%. Now, the math doesn't work because of the cost of the grading. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic, but I hope people are thinking about when you're waiting on your cards to get back and thinking how wonderful it's going to be when that happens. So are nine million other people. Yeah. So that, that's just kind of my cautionary tale. I think it's fair. The other clogged part of the pipeline, you know, you, that you didn't mention was the the printing that the card companies need to produce product. True, true. Uh, yeah, thank you for reminding me about that. Is that um, I have been working with some manufacturers. Uh, you did mention that I work with Decision Trading Cards. Uh, we were trying to come out with Series Two that should have been out a couple of weeks ago, not by any fault of our own, but the printers backed up. You can't get the cards printed. So if you're hearing about manufacturers pushing products back, you know, they're, they're not happening as quick. What people are may, may or may not be hearing is the delays are happening at the man, printing level is that they have so much volume or there's so many more cards and so many more brands being printed and so many more newcomers wanting to print another clog. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the manufacturers get a lot of flack from the hobby on, on, 
release dates being pushed back, but it's <laughs> sometimes it's in their control and sometimes, and this is one case that it's really not. Yeah. Yeah. There's only so much capacity out there. So, okay. No, so be patient with series two on decision 2020 trading. <laughs> yeah, it should, yeah. It should hopefully be coming by the end of the month. But uh, again, a lot of it, not in the control of uh, the manufacturers. Something you told me the other night that I thought was really cool was that um, had to do with the silver, uh, the silver bricks or the, what do we call them? The silver uh, plates or the, silver the, bars, the bars. Thank you. The silver yeah. bars that yeah. go into uh, Panini's eminence product. More than just eminence. Yeah. They use the, they use solid gold and solid silver bars across um, a lot of their, a lot of their high end brands. Uh, including National Treasures, including Eminence, and, and including um, I'm drawing a blank on some of the others. But where do they get those from? They, I, I am a vendor for that product. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> um, and also, there, um, this is a prototype. This is not the real thing, but this is like uh, Contenders Gold Gold Card. They also do them in silver, where there's it's actually printed on the surface of, uh, of gold and you're, you know, it actually brings real value to, you know, you get these briefcase boxes where they cost you 500, a thousand, 2000, a pack, but at least you're getting some real value. Like here's an example of an NFL bar that you can find, you know, there might only be 10, 10 Brady's and, you know, 10 Tomlinson's and 10, whatever, but they put those in the product. And um, that's one of the things that, you know, when I went into the uh, the coin in the hobby or the, the coin in the metals business, and I got experience there over the two years that I was out of the traditional hobby, you know, I kind of brought that experience back and, and helped different manufacturers, including Panini that want to put those things in their products. So um, I, I really get a lot of satisfaction out of that when I'm, I'm at the mint or I'm at a designer and we're looking at something that is a little bit off center or a little bit unclear and the mint they're going to want to say that oh that's okay you know most people would accept that and i'd say mm, not for what these people are paying for this product and where it's going they are not going to accept that right that's got to be perfectly centered that's get, no that is not clean enough that some cannot be okay and some be okay they all have to be perfect so i love having the hobby representation to the non-hobby vendor and you know, being able to provide quality product to companies like Panini. And so just so I'm clear, when Panini puts a, a metal bar into a card, they get it from you or, or are, are you one of a few vendors that they use for those product, for those uh, inputs? Right now they're, they're all coming from me and that's, that's pretty they cool. come from a, a local mint here in Dallas, Texas that we have them manufactured at. That's the company that I had worked for previously and held a great relationship and, um, still continue to do that. So, you know, I, I joke sometimes that when I'm making the delivery that when I look on the market and see these, some of these cards in the secondary market, I can say at some point that bar was in the back of my Tahoe. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, I just think it's so cool that you're the guy that, that supplies those. It's, it's nice. It's just nice to see the, it's nice to know. It's just neat to know that uh, that's where they come from. And I've got not, one around here somewhere I wanted to show, but boy, do you, do you have the, the slide or the image of that Pulisic? I, oh, I don't have it to, okay. to bring up quickly. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll For show sure. that at some point, but are you people talking know about what the, the solid, solid silver bars and solid gold bars look like. 
Are you talking about the Elemental Mint product? No, no, that was that was before Panini. Okay, I I don't. But listen, we're we're we are running out of time, Dave. So we're just gonna have yeah. to get you back on the show so we can continue the discussion another time. So absolutely, yeah, we're we're definitely gonna have you back. But uh, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. I just want to do a couple comments. Kevin Jones says this has been a great conversation. Thank you, Kevin. And Kevin reminds me that at the end of the night, so we're talking about just over two hours from now, I am going to open up a room on Clubhouse. If any of you out there are on the Clubhouse app, check it out. We'll have a room. Try to follow at Sports Cards Live, and you'll find the room that I'm going to open up. And and we're going to con- continue the conversation. And Dave, if you're still awake, I hope you, you're, you know, no pressure because it's going to be late. I know yeah. but if you're still awake, if not, no problem. I hope you can join, but for anyone else out there, kind of remember what you want to talk about, have any questions, comments, let's uh, debrief tonight's episodes a little bit on clubhouse later on and remind everybody in about 10 minutes, we're going to start the after hours show, which is a brand new broadcast still on the sports cards live YouTube channel but a different broadcast. So you'll, you'll go to the main channel when you'll see it come up there in about 10 minutes with Brian Gray. And that is called after hours. Uh, here's a question that Seth Gordon has put up a couple of times and I'm sorry, Seth, I'm just getting into it now. So I don't know if you have any insight into this, Dave, but he says, how often are graders required to take breaks and rest their eyes? Oh, good question. And yeah. I, and, uh, I, I, um, I don't know if there's a requirement but I also don't think that there's a guy that wouldn't want to. I mean, I, I, I know that lunch is a pretty serious event at BGS and, you know, they sure enjoy, you know, getting out of that room and sharing the horror stories or talking about, you know, different things and, um, you know, sharing information about what they see on cards is, is, is just as big a part of the job as, as quote unquote retraining is that, you know, there could be a consistency that they see where you notice that this this card or this brand always has X or always has Y. Should we be hard on that or not as hard on that? And, you know, those are the conversations that, you know, um, I would just love hear, overhearing. And uh, I know that it brings a lot of value to to the sharpness of the guys there. But uh, I can guarantee you they are taking breaks. Yeah. Okay. Good to at hear. At least in BGS, and I sure hope they are PSA too, because you guys deserve it. Yeah. Okay. A couple of questions I want to address really quickly. Uh, Willie T says, Dave, because you're associated with grading, can you collect grading graded cards? Looking at your room, you obviously still collect. So do do you collect? And I I don't think you you couldn't. I'm not really associated with grade. I mean, I'm not paid by Beckett. I'm not paid by PSA. I'm not a I'm not a, a vendor or a client or any relationship with grading right now. So anything that I've talked about has been the past. There's there's nothing current there. But yes, right. I am an avid avid collector and avid submitter to multiple grading companies. And I, I have COMC accounts. I have eBay. I am I am a collector. Yes, and that has never stopped. Um, yeah. Are we going to do the the five? No. Okay. We're not. We're not going to have time. Okay. <laughs> no problem. Not. No problem. Because in that in that five, one of my regret answers would have been that I have some Gretzky rookies that I never got graded. Ah. They're sitting here because my philosophy as a collector was if I'm not going to sell it, I don't need to get it graded. Well, Fair. now it, that's cost me a lot of money. <laughs> because now to get them graded eventually is going to cost more. What I could have done for $25 is now going to cost me three to 500 or whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ryan O'Hara says, uh, what does Dave collect? Any particular hockey? Uh, or not. Not hockey, not, not as much anymore. I was a pretty active Rona collector, but, um, I don't collect hockey as much as I used to. Um, but you know, there's, I, I collect a lot of guys that come out of my college. I collect, um, you know, I still keep up with some of the other players from my youth, like, Bucky Denton, Ozzie Guillen, just because it's cheap to collect them. And, but um, I'm all over the road. Ho- soccer is probably more of a passion for me than hockey. Hockey was a lot bigger for me in the 80s and 90s. Okay. Um, and then, listen, we're – okay. So we're going to wind this this episode down because we're going to go live with Brian in about seven minutes. So I just want to – there's one more comment uh, that Rich brought up, Dave, uh, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up, ask you to speak about it for a couple minutes to want to kind of on our way out. But before we do that, I do want to thank you, man. This has been maybe the fastest two hour episode uh, we've ever had. So uh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm definitely going to ask you to come back. In thank the you. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed it uh, immensely, actually. Uh, yeah. Just a great person to talk to and to, uh, to, to, to bring to, to the sports cards live audience. I feel very honored to have you. Thank you. So, so thank you. Um, and I want to thank the chat tonight. You guys uh, put out some really great questions and comments. I, I greatly appreciate pretty much all of it. And I hope that person that I took out at the beginning was able to get back in. Uh, it just looked like it, the, the, the comments were being spammed. And I don't think that was the case. Uh, Joe says, wonderful show. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. House of Jordans, Chris. Great to see you. Thank you so much, Chris. And thank you, Seth Gordon. Appreciate those comments as well. So. Okay, before we go to the final topic, I do want to remind everybody, Brian Gray, after hours, 10 minutes from now, or sorry, even less, five or six minutes from now. Uh, if I don't see you there, if we don't see you on Clubhouse later on tonight, have a great week. We'll see you next Saturday back with DJ Ski on, on the first show and Adam Gray from Basketball Card Fanatic on the final show, on the, on the late show. Okay, so Rich Klein says, in all seriousness, Dave, with what he has done for his wife over the years, has been an inspiration for those who know him? Can you uh, do? Do you want to speak? Uh, do you want to speak to this, Dave, and just maybe um, let let the audience kind of know what Rich is getting at and uh, what what's going on in your life a little bit? Uh, thanks, Rich. I appreciate it. And, and the people that know me, it's no secret. You know, my wife was diagnosed with Huntington's disease in 2007. That's a degenerative brain disease that is really ALS and all the others combined. It's just awful, and it's 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 taken her away from me and, and my, my two boys and she's in her final months now. And, um, it's been a long road, but, um, it's been rewarding to be able to share that journey. Um, but I appreciate the support. The people in this hobby have been amazing. And I have, I think, you know, the, the closeness and the friendships that I've gained that have come out of the hobby, but have helped me in my personal life. It's just, um, it's 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 amazing but um if you're not familiar with huntington's disease you know look it up it's it's pretty awful and um um thankfully early in our marriage you know my wife was supportive of the hobby and supportive of my career and um she'd be uh she'd be proud of this that's uh, i'm 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 glad to i'm glad to hear that she'd be proud of this it's uh, it's it's truly an honor to to give you the the platform tonight thanks um, thanks 
Uh, I want to say happy anniversary. I saw on Facebook. I don't know if it's today or yesterday or, or when that w- that post was, but yeah, yeah, it was uh, two days ago and twenty five years. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've a few people that you know have have you know mentioned to me just what a what a mensch you are, what what a great guy you are, and how how wonderful you've been throughout this challenging process. So I don't know what else I can say, but um, I'm, I'm, I look up to you, man. I look up to you. I just got to know you, but I do. And I think you're, you're just a great guy and an inspiration to many. And uh, your kids should be you know, proud of you. And, and I'm sure you are all the, all the, all those things, man, all the, all, the, all the touchy feelies. I want to share them with you. Thank you. And, um, and I wish you the best and uh, the, as easy as the future can be for you and your boys and your wife, of course, as well. Okay, we are going to wrap this up again. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll be back with Brian Gray in about three or four minutes. I'm going to fill up my water and uh, be back with Brian on the new broadcast. So we don't see you there. Good night. And thank you, everyone, so much. And thanks again to, to Dave. Been a pleasure having you, man. One quick endorsement. If people don't know who Jeff Morris is, don't let that keep you from watching that episode. I think it's in two weeks. Jeff is one of the one of my great friends in the business. And I promise you there will be the most laughs in that episode because he is such a funny guy. He was a he was a big player in the business a few years ago. And uh, one of my good friends who also wrote about um, he's a great writer. And he and he I was honored to have him write about me and Bev in a in a newspaper article a couple of years ago. And um so even if you don't know who Jeff is, I encourage you to make sure you watch that episode in a couple of weeks. I can't wait. I appreciate that. And he, he worked for Pacific Trading Cards for a yep. while with uh, with Mike. Um, oh, gosh. Kramer. Kramer. Yeah. And Collectors. Oh. He was also at Collectors Edge. OK. OK. Yeah. Well, th- thank you for that endorsement. And uh, and with that, good night, everybody. Dave, you hang tight there for two seconds and uh, we'll see you all in after hours, if not next week, if not on Clubhouse later on tonight. Good night. Thanks, everybody. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.